0: Welcome to Inside the Coaching Mind, conversations on leadership, coaching, and team building, presented by Human X Ventures. Your host, Terry Pettit, led the University of Nebraska volleyball team from 1977 to 1999 and coached the Cornhuskers to their first national championship in 1995. Today, Coach Pettit mentors coaches, authors books, and presents to corporations and businesses on leadership and team building. Now, without further ado, here's your host, Coach Terry Pettit. I'm Terry Pettit, the host of Inside the Coaching Mind. I'm here with our producer, Dave Pulaski from Learfield. This podcast is brought to you by HumanX Ventures, an organization that recruits, develops, and mentors extraordinary coaches and leaders. And that's what we have today as our guest, Jim Stone, Hall of Fame uh, women's volleyball coach at the Ohio State uh, university. <laughs> that was the first test you passed, <laughs> uh, and also a, a coach of several youth national teams. Since he retired from Ohio State, he's been a, a mentor to hundreds of coaches. He writes a wonderful journal. He has a book that every uh, volleyball coach in the country should should own and reference. We'll talk about that. Um, Jim, I don't, you know, I, I know you grew up in Battle Creek. Is that correctly? Is that Battle correct? Creek, Michigan, yeah. Home, home of Kellogg's. <laughs> and your father was the uh, director of athletics at Kellogg. Uh, General
1: Community College. In in fact, he, uh, a, a bit of trivia, he was the athletic director that hired Mick Haley to his first position um, at at Kellogg Community College then Mick obviously started a men's program there and women's program and then went on to things bigger than
0: Kellogg Community College <laughs> but, but uh yeah you, you, my
1: dad my dad was the first uh gave Mick his first job
0: right uh, but my uh when when I looked up your stats at Ball State there are no stats they <laughs> for the the years I broke you broke all the records <laughs> <laughs> uh so, how many years did you play at Ball State? Well, actually,
1: I went down to Ball State to play basketball. Uh, my My father, along with me an athletic director, was a basketball coach at um, Kellogg Community College. played there for two years, and I was going to play basketball at uh, at Ball State. and the coach that recruited me in that that six months between between the two institutions got fired. And the new coach wasn't as excited about my game as as the old coach was. (laughs) Uh, I didn't see a lot of future there. Um, And then my circle of friends, they're all playing volleyball and they are having a good time. And um, so for about a week between stopping the basketball thing and starting volleyball, I was like normal college student. It's like, okay, I can't do this. (laughs) Come back home every day and play cards or whatever. So yeah, I got into volleyball and I ended up playing three years there.
0: Good. Had had you had any volleyball experience prior to that?
1: Well, like I said, Mix was starting a men's club program at Kellogg Community College. So I'd go up there and horse around with it. Um, but it was it was always a secondary thing. Um, but I picked I picked up on it pretty fast. So the transition was was pretty painless, and I was actually one of the few people that didn't mind receiving serve. I, I thought that was kind of an easy skill, and I couldn't understand why people had so much trouble with it. Um, however, there were some other holes in my game that I'll, I, I won't mention.
0: <laughs> so we have something in common. Uh, so you never attended Kellogg, but you may have played on their men's club team, at least in a tournament or two. Correct. And And I did the same for North Carolina. never attended it, but played on their uh, men's uh, club team. then your um your first coaching job was at the University of Wyoming. Yeah, actually, I went out there
1: uh, to teach. i was a I was an instructor in the education department. and then I would just volunteer to help with the volleyball program. and uh, the coach at that time, Was going to go into full-time administration and she says why don't you just take over the program Um, so that was kind of that right place right time thing and then i stayed there for three years coaching and then went on to
0: ohio state and you know we 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 may have played each other i know at least once maybe twice once in ogallala nebraska um, okay, I remember we met that. There. Yeah. <laughs> And that tradition has continued. I think Coach Cook took his team to Ogallala two or three years ago, and each year he tries to play a spring match somewhere out in the in the yeah. middle of Nebraska. But ours was a real match, and that wasn't all that unusual at that time. We played in York, Nebraska, Beatrice, Nebraska. This is before we had the following that we that we have in Lincoln. So uh, Ohio State opens up, and you were who was the athletic director of athletics at that point?
1: Uh, the women's athletic director um, was Phyllis Bailey. She's the one that actually hired me. Um, and then Hugh Heineman was the athletic director, but you know he was a, he was a pretty much <laughs> football, uh, football, 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 football. <laughs> you know so uh yeah but Phyllis who is a great lady and unfortunately just passed away a few months ago um was i was fortunate enough to be hired by her and she came out of the um uh, a i a w background so her thing was teaching and uh, uh she she mentored coaches i mean now it's changed i mean you're you're hired by an athletic director and you know, if you don't win, you're out of there. And, you know, I don't know how many times Phyllis would bring me in, into her office and just kind of go, okay, now wait, <laughs> what are you doing here? Um, So she was a, <laughs> a, a wonderful person to, um, to be a first boss, because she allowed me to make mistakes without, you know, firing me, you know, and making them learning experiences. And, that's something that I'll, I'll never forget. And I respect her tremendously for
0: Wow, and that's it, uh, certainly, it would be great if every athletic department had a couple mentors in the department. Um, in, in particular, we see people go uh, from an assistant coaching position to their first head position, and they're really set up to fail if they don't have somebody that they can uh, interact with. On a, you know, on a I remember regular
1: basis. Russ Rose telling me one time in in every coach's career, there'll probably be, if you're in it long enough, there'll probably be once or twice where it's 50-50 if you're going to get, going to get fired or not. Either you've made a mistake or you've had a bad year <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and, and you're right. I th- I think if when those situations happen, it's not if, it's kind of when, to have an administrator right. that is willing to work you through the choppy waters, I think, is a godsend.
0: Yeah, I would agree. You know, uh, you, you do so many wonderful things, but the, every every volleyball coach out there should subscribe to your journal. And I, I reviewed one that I had been uh, reading uh, a week ago, and it's a dozen pillars for a productive practice. And if you don't mind, I'd like to like to go through those. You and I talked earlier this morning about the state of coaching youth volleyball and club and high school. And uh, I'm paraphrasing our conversation, but it was, it appears that there are more people that know volleyball than know how to teach volleyball. Would you think that's a a fair statement?
1: I, I think it's extremely fair. I think, um, you know, if you ask again, you, a lot of what I say is just gonna be total generalization. So with that disclaimer, if if you go into uh, most club environments and you 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 kind of see what people are teaching, in general, they're teaching okay stuff. They're teaching kids the kids to pass and you know, hit or you know whatever the skill might be. Um, but the the way they organize their practice, the way they present information is you know they may know what they want the players to do but the ability to create an environment where the kids can take that information and kind of put it into their own thing uh, i think is lacking and I, and I think we need to as a as a profession we need to approach coaching from a teaching perspective um cuz coaching is teaching and teaching is coaching they're they're synonymous ventures you know so You know, how can we best organize what we do in in an atmosphere that's that will precipitate learning? And just because somebody or players just because they're, you know, it's the old John Wooden line. Don't don't confuse activity with getting something accomplished. Right. And, you know, so I see a lot of activity, but I'm not sure we're accomplishing what we're
0: capable of. a, A great example of that would be a driving range on a golf course. There'll be 30 people out there. There might be one or two who are actually doing something with intent. Uh, yesterday, I saw a young boy. He was 12 years old, and his dad was sitting there. And The dad was not a particularly good golfer. But every time I've seen this kid, he's laid down alignment rods. He's, he's stepped into the ball. He's working on a routine. So I'm guessing that he got this from a YouTube video or watch golf on TV. But I I made the comment to the dad, you don't know how special this is, what your son is doing. He he's very specific. He's really going through deliberate practice without the expert there to, to uh, handle it. But, uh, well, I'm going to run through these and and I'm going to interject a couple of times with some, uh, some of my own pillars, where the language might be slightly different, but the first one you begin with is that when we when we run a practice, we have to make every minute matter. Uh, summarize that in a, in a few sentences. We have to make every minute matter.
1: Well, I think um, I think players, regardless of age, there's only so much energy that they have to give, um, and I think. To to start a practice doing things that have no relation to the game at all, I think it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. So so not,
0: what's what's an example of that?
1: Oh geez, you know, come up with a, a million games. I mean, um, you know, the one I've seen most often now is is they play an over the net tennis where the ball hits and they pass it back and you know, and I'm just like going. Okay, hopefully that never happens in a game. <laughs> but, um, but it, And it's fun. Okay, great. But um, you only got, for for most club situations, you only have 120 minutes. And you really want to waste five or ten minutes doing that type of thing. So I, I guess the, the gist of the statement is what's important in the game? It, it might be a skill. It might be movement. It, it might be knowledge um uh whatever it is but as soon as you're going like you're going and uh you, there's just um there's so much to do and there's so little time you can't afford to waste time
0: right um yeah i i i, I agree with you uh 100% that uh when you watch a uh an exceptional coach run a practice Everything is crisp. Even the the water breaks, we used to practice timeouts. So when we changed drills, the players would run over to a bench. We'd have 30 seconds to explain the next drill, which um, again is kind of repetition in them learning to be attentive during that 30 second period and get back out on the court. Your, I remember second- uh,
1: uh, b- before Great. we move on, I remember when Toshi Yoshida was coaching our women's national team, um, and he would organize like pre-practice group A, group B. So when it came down to the water breaks, group A went to get get water, and group B they're out there doing stuff. And right. then ninety seconds later, there they, there would be a flip. So like, and he's out there the whole time. I mean, he's grinding away. (laughs) Um, You know, so there's, I guess guess the point being, there's a lot of ways to organize a practice and and using time wisely, I think would be something that people should embrace.
0: Well, I'm sure there are coaches out there listening and they're saying, I use my time wisely. We we play three on three for half an hour uh, to to begin practice. And there's some value in that. Sure. Um, But, but, um it's somewhat limited value in a sport that's volleyball in my opinion is an incredibly complex sport very very difficult uh, to to develop all the skills and um we're going to run into this as we as we talk but there's there are some people in this country who believe you just throw people out there and they play but i don't personally know how you do some of these things Without great intention, and without breaking down the the fundamentals, and I, and I think that, I think you agree you would agree with that.
1: Well, I mean you've heard of Anders Ericsson. and you you mentioned earlier about deliberate practice, and yes. you know his his approach to any uh, any expert getting good. Like he he was in a great situation of studying how how great players got great. And he said they all were um, approach it in a very deliberate fashion. So even if you're playing three on three, that's not the worst activity in the world by by any stretch. But unless you have a deliberate focus, like here's what we're working on while we're playing the Guard three rails. on three, um, it's, you know, queen of the court. I mean, everybody plays queen of the court. Again, not a bad activity. But we make it bad because there's no focus, there's no intention, there's no there's no measurement of good, bad, or in between, you know. So yeah, to have um, to go that extra step with the idea of not having just an activity, but an activity with a focus, I think is, is essential for improvement.
0: Yeah, and you can you can even us even Queen of the Court, you can add one little tweak to it and say, okay, this side has to attack zone one, or this side attacks zone six, or if the ball if the ball is shot over the net with the hands and it hits the floor, game over. So that yeah. people learn to get back to a base position. So we're constantly working on a specific as- aspect of the game. Right. Uh, your, your second pillar is implement the, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Pareto principle when uh, planning practice?
1: Yeah, that's, that's. Um, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it either, so I'll, I'll just, I'll <laughs> bypass it. Um, that's a you know concept. A lot of it is in sales and business where um, you want to make sure that you're spending 80% of your time on the 20% of things that are most important. Um, and, you know, that's m- my change over the years, actually, after I left Ohio State, is at Ohio State, we wanted to get good at everything. We wanted to become good defenders and good blockers and good servers and good passers. And uh, now that I'm an old guy, I go, well, you don't have to be good at everything, but you have to be good at the important things. You have to be able to kill the ball. Um, You know, if, if you're a great defending team, but then you can't kill off of the dig, you haven't accomplished what you need to accomplish. So, yeah, that is that principle is just make sure as you're drawing up your activities, what's the most important, what are the most important items? And I want to make sure that I hit those a lot. That doesn't mean you ignore the other things, but you spend more time on the important things and And not all the skills are created equal.
0: Well, a good example of that would be uh, Jim McLaughlin when he was the coach at Washington, and they're playing in the national championship match in Seattle. And that year, they had more aces than any other team in the league and fewer errors. That did not come about by accident. Three times during every practice, they had deliberate practice with serving. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of practice, the middle of practice, and the end of practice. So he had determined for us to win the the, the Pac-12 and have a great season. We are going to prioritize this, and if it's if it's if it's valuable at the highest Division One level, you have to know it's even more valuable at a junior high or high school level.
1: Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> uh, in an event I, I try to obliterate from my memory banks, but my the first team I took to the uh, under eighteen world championships um opened my eyes to how serious these other teams took serving you know i mean i don't think i was atypical as a coach i mean we would serve occasionally throughout practice maybe finished with 10 serves but it wasn't the it wasn't the focus that it need be and in, in the course of our conversation this morning in terms of what would i do different i thought i went back to ohio state it's like Serve, (laughs) serve a lot uh, (laughs) and serve tough and serve in. It always annoys me when you hear on broadcasts where, you know, a team is making an inordinate amount of service errors and the rationalization is "Hey, you know, they're serving tough. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. It certainly doesn't work that way internationally. It's like you serve tough and you serve in. Uh, You don't serve tough with, hey, it's 50-50. Um, you serve tough and serve in and I, I think the serving in the past whatever five seven ten years at the collegiate level has gotten significantly better than than when you and I were, were coaching Oh, and, and I wish at the club level they would make a modification to the to the court area that would allow good serving you know they have like whatever 10 tiles at the end of the court and it's like you know that might be okay for twelve-year-olds, but for eighteen-year-olds, you know right. they they need to get more room and take serving seriously. But anyway, um, off on a tangent, uh, um, serving's important, and I I respect uh, Jim for what he did and how how he went about winning his championship.
0: Yeah, um, another pillar: the the use of quality feedback is essential to skill development so what is quality feedback give me an example um you've got an assistant coach or a player serving i'm working on serve reception i'm passing in zone five to the setter. what's what's quality feedback and what isn't quality feedback
1: well i think um well quality quality feedback has to be specific Good job is not quality feedback. Way to go! Not not good feedback. It has to be very specific. It has to be very timely, like right away. Um, into practice feedback, okay. Right after the event is even better, you know. So if somebody gets aced and they didn't move their feet, hey, let's let's do this thing better next time. I mean, right away. Um, You know, I'm not a huge one. I mean, practice stats, okay. Um, But again, that's going to be after the fact. So I'd rather the feedback be immediate and um, specific. And the last, my three pillars under that pillar, um, the opportunity to repeat right away. Um, So if if somebody, you know, hacks up a ball, and rather than just saying move your feet, hit another ball at them. So they get a chance. Yeah, air, oh, oh, okay. That's what I that's, was going to ask. Yeah.
0: air, air Correct. Yeah. We, um, air correct. On the spot. So if somebody doesn't go for a ball, I grab a ball and throw it out there again and they make the right movement.
1: Yeah. And, and I would rather see that again, how would I change from Ohio state? I, I didn't do that a lot at Ohio state. Um, but I, I did it a lot with the youth team. If somebody if somebody was making a hitting error, set them another ball, give them a chance to swing again. You know, so um, so quality feedback, kind of under the umbrella of you know, make make sure it's specific, make sure it's timely, and give them a chance to repeat.
0: Here's a a, a sub point on the the goal of practice is develop mastery of skills. You say pursue the automation of skill execution. And that means what? Build habits. Um,
1: uh, I mean, I, I'm guilty of it. How many times have coaches say, hey, you got to think out there. And it's like, no, you, you really don't want people thinking out there because <laughs> uh, the, the thought process, of anything, just slows players down. So you have to get where they're seeing things based on their practice experience. What what am I get. looking for? What are my keys? What am I doing? What shots are going to be there in this situation? Um, so a as much as they can build, build habits, yeah. Um, uh, there's a great book out for coaches called The Power of Habit um, by Duhigg, D-U-H-I-G-G. Um, and it's it's kind of a halfway a sports book. Uh, where he I mean Tony Dungy's in there about how he went about um, when he was with Tampa Bay you know, breaking bad habits and building good ones and boy in in the world of club volleyball that's you're doing that a lot so he kind of goes through the key of that and Michael Phelps talks about the routines he gets into and um, so anyway that's kind of what I mean by that in terms of you want to reduce the thought, and, but have the habits built already. And if you watch players play, if you walk into any club tournament and you watch players play, you know exactly what they do in practice. You can't morph into this other being just because you're wearing a uniform, you know, so you're going to do what you practice.
0: And I'm going to add a Terry Pettit pillar to this, and that would be, At the beginning of the season, you know, we set goals. So a team wants to win the Big Ten uh, championship or the Pac-12 championship. And to do that, I have to beat a specific team. Let's say that that team has a great back row attacker. I can't just wait to the three days before we play that team. I I have to create that situation in practice and maybe work on it every day. How, how you know we're going to we're going to try to remove her opportunities several different ways we're also going to ha- make sure that we um, funnel the ball as much as we can to diggers that can allow us to transition. But the, the point is that to reach a goal, there may be only one one player we play all year that can do that. But, but, we can't prepare for it just in those two or three days of the week that we happen to play that team
1: yeah when i when I would get the uh, youth national team together, um, I would show them video of Russia, especially the Eastern European teams, Russia, Serbia, um, you know big, strong athletes, and just stuff blocking balls and and I would tell the USA kids, so you think that low seam shot's going to score? You know, <laughs> so that you got to put that shot away until next club season. It'll score then, but against these guys, you better get used to hitting off the hands and, and doing some things. So, so yeah, I, I agree. you got to have kind of this vision of where you want to be down the road.
0: Another pillar for Jim Stone, correct instead of critique. Let's say that a ball drop step, um, or move to a position to to pass the ball well. What is the um, what's the difference in correct and critique, and how you would respond to that?
1: Um, well, it's correct and critique. I, I, I want to make sure it's it's critique rather than criticize. Right. Um, so you know, you know, sad to say. When I was a lot of the time I was at Ohio State, I was more critical and I, I should have been more corrective, if that makes sense. You know, so, you know, the we mentioned earlier, being able to provide feedback and then the opportunity to repeat right away. Um, that will have more benefit than telling somebody you did this wrong. You did this thing wrong. Um You know, that's also a form of feedback, but I'm not sure that's the most productive form of feedback. Um, You know, so the ability to um, and I'm I'm definitely not one of those coaches that sugarcoats coats everything, but the ability to, you know, that behavior wasn't right. Here's what I want you to do. So you're correcting the behavior rather than just telling somebody you know you did that wrong you know I I'm not sure that's beneficial or as
0: beneficial as the other way well we'll see it again in professional golf we'll see somebody miss hit a shot and in golf they have the time to do this you'll see the player step back and go through the motion of what he intended to do you know what the correct motion so he's he's self-correcting so that's what he's doing he's not He's not being judgmental. He's trying to imprint a repetition that he's had before about the, the correct movement. Yeah, when
1: I was in Columbus, we we would go out and watch the uh, Memorial Golf Tournament every year out, out in Dublin. And um, I, I really enjoyed the practice rounds when the guys are out there practicing because um, they wouldn't necessarily hit a bad shot. Sometimes they did, but... You know, but they're always hitting two or three balls. They'd hit one, look at it, okay, and then hit again. Um, and, and take that same concept onto a volleyball court, uh, right. I, I think, would be very beneficial. And that's, that's really hard to do if all you do in a practice is play, you know, because you may say, okay, move your feet next time. But the next five serves may go to somebody else. So they don't get a chance to practice um, what you just said. And, you know, then they forget about it, you know. So the the immediate repetition, I think, is huge.
0: Well, you mentioned it in one of your journals. And uh, the former Wisconsin volleyball coach invented a game. And, yeah, yeah. He And I was waiting for you to say it because I didn't know how to pronounce it. But you know, I did that. But I didn't have I didn't have the the dies or all the things he had. But essentially, the game is this: that you place limitations and score points on objectives. So, for example, you and uh, we have two sides scrimmaging, and we we may get a point every time we attack zone one or we force the setter to play the ball. Um, we may get a a point an extra point every time we use the block on the left side so right. we're 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 scoring points for behaviors not just the end of the rally and i i think that, that uh i think every coach evolves into that coaching strategy or, or let me put it this way every successful coach evolves into that coaching strategy we can't just th- uh, uh here's another example i was watching uh, university of denver play when jesse mahoney was the coach and the middle blocker didn't close on the weak side the ball's tipped but she makes a great run through and pops it up that didn't happen by accident right that didn't happen just because they were scrimmaging you know that situation had to be practiced hundreds of times for that to be successful so in a practice you know you could you could you can uh, create that situation
1: yeah i mean um i'll, I'll attach a 5 dollar word to it just uh and I, I i i will rarely play sets to 25 in practice i mean occasionally maybe but rarely um but i do a lot of 6 on 6 with what i call constraints right where you're scripting everything right so that way like the first set has to go to left front for example um easy example uh, and you you're not rotating you're you're playing like 10 points and the first set's got to go to left front so you got left front working on their offense you you got right front middle front working on their blocking and left back's working on digging inside the block and somebody's working on passing, you know, but they're not rotating. They're, they're, it's all scripted. Like maybe you even go, okay, the serve has to go to the Libro. So there's a lot of focus on where the serve goes. So everybody's got their thing that they're thinking about inside of a, you know, game-like situation. And I, I just wish more coaches would construct their practices with that in mind. Uh, as opposed to just random play without, or at least with minimal focus?
0: Well, we would, we would begin practice with small group work. And a, a lot of the times the middles might be working with the setters in transition and the out, outside hitters would be uh, working on defense, et cetera. With the idea that after that, we would be moving to a situation so for example, the situation could be the, we are going to begin with our setter digging a ball from the right back a right front attacker. And we, we will have worked individually on how are we going to handle this now, the way most teams handle it today, the libero comes up, but she has all kinds of options. She can set the left front. She can set the pipe. She could set the right side player. Um, but that situation happens 20% in every match that we see played today. People are attacking back row setters. Right. So a, a lot of the times a match could be won if you win that battle, if you're better at that than the opponent. So we, we have to become great at that. We have to become better than other teams at that. And, and I would even take it a step further. You know, when you and I were coaching and the setter dug the ball, it was usually set by the right side player who was a technique player. Right. And it evolved to being set by a middle blocker who could go forward or backwards. Right now, every team in the country is having that left back player, the Libro, set the ball. But there's no reason that that the Libro needs to be there. She could be at middle back and be able to step in and use her hands and probably set the ball moving toward the net or um you could you know you could come out one year at northern colorado they they dug the ball and passed it to the left front attacker and she attacked the ball or set it yeah so we need to encourage creativity uh, because people tend to see one thing and think that that's the only way that they can do it.
1: Yeah. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I agree 100%. I remember, well, two scenarios. I remember watching the Italian national team women play. Left The Libra, left back, was was playing a ball, middle of the court, about three-meter line, and she side-bumped a 31 up to the middle hitter who went <laughs> up and, and, it's, and it's like, wow. Well, I'm assuming that's not the first time she did that. I mean they're they're working on this stuff and and then you watch the Brazilian men, whoever the Libra was at that time. I mean, he would jump from behind a three meter line to like five feet in front and turn and back. I mean, he was just dealing it yeah, it uh I think we we really need to be more creative uh, and and try to get where our the Libros are using their hands. I mean, when they're 15 feet off the net, to form pass the ball makes zero sense to me. I mean, they got to they gotta be using their hands more than what they are.
0: Well, I, uh, in in uh, it may have been in Volleyball Magazine, but somewhere in the last 24 hours, I saw someone bump set a great Japanese middle back player on a pipe, but it was a BIC. It was not a high bump yeah. set and you know that um speed kills speed wins yeah Uh, earlier today you know we, we had a little bit of conversation my my feeling is that the game has evolved in women's volleyball more defensively with serving and and blocking and floor defense but I don't see as much creativity off offensively I don't see And maybe that's because the passing is broken down a little bit with tough serving but i i don't see as as many uh crossing plays as many things that are designed to create deception i think it happens more when people have less talent than when they have talent um i I think there's a tendency when if i've got these great six four athletes I don't why mess it up just you know set the ball to them until
1: you until you meet another six until yeah
0: until until you meet somebody else that that is as as good as it what one of the coaches that I really admire um Kelly Sheffield at Wisconsin I don't think things have to be perfect for him to run it you know I think he's willing depending on the matchup if he feels he needs to run something different against Penn State he'll run it he'll set a person that maybe has not been a primary back row attacker um, if he needs to do it yeah uh, he's willing to take that risk but I don't I don't see enough of that I see two, I see mostly sets at the pin and in the middle so uh, four three slide or four three or 415 yeah. um uh, so i i think that's an area of the game that we can improve in
1: yeah and you have to it is it's one it, college coaches have such a condensed season that's it's almost like do do we have time to experiment uh, you know these teams going over to europe now it's just what an advantage that is cuz they can they can try things and you know that, that that 10 days before they go, they're they can try things, and I, I think that's uh that's that's fantastic just to have the time and the ability to make mistakes without you know the conference championship, depending upon it. Yeah, I, and, and the I, other part of that, Terry, I, I think is is um the the the, the setting um is not where it needs to be. The, the number of quality setters I think is, can be better than what it is right now. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, everybody's running six twos and bringing their setter out in the front row. And, you know, the metrics probably say that that's good, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that, um, it, it to me, in essence, you're taking half the contacts away from a setter and, how much better would they be if they had all the other contacts? And uh, I, I, so I don't I, know. I, I mean, I – I agree I, I, with I don't you. Want, I don't want to be in the left field bleachers critiquing what coaches are doing out there, but um, that'd be – to me, that'd be an interesting thing is how teams perform when it's a 5-1 versus a
0: 6-2. Yeah. I, I would I, – I agree. When I – yeah, when I see teams that are running – a 6-2, my first thought is, and it may not be true, but my first thought is, well, they may not have an extraordinary setter that because why would you bring in another person in that position if you had one? Uh, Mm -hmm. It's hard enough to develop timing and rhythm and and leadership in one person, and now you've got two different people doing it. I, I think at the high school level and the club level, there's a tendency to do it just to get more people on the court who happen oh, to play. Sure. For that, sure. That um, n- another uh, gemstone pillar: errors are okay, but I think that needs a big qualification. Yeah, there's there's an
1: asterisk <laughs> with that one. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, um, again, this is uh, how I how I I personally changed. I you know I was very critical of errors when I was at Ohio State and. And I think if if your players aren't making errors, one, they're not they're not being pushed to expand their skill set. You know, you you want people expanding their game and hitting different shots, um, serving at a maybe a higher velocity in practice, whatever the skill is. But it's not like you can click your fingers and they're they're going to get it. You know, so um errors errors are okay and i think um and that's why i'm really down the latest blog i did was on good hearts law i don't know if you if you read that or not i read that how mistakes if you if you use mistakes or just statistics and that becomes the goal your players will modify their game to the goal you know so if you want to reduce errors okay, but then your players are going to not take chances. They're going to play it safe. They're going to tip. They're going to – you know, so to me, you have to be very cautious about um, discouraging errors in practice. Now, you don't want to be be crazy with errors, but if someone tries a shot and they just miss, uh, it's – yeah, you're – it's – one. there's a book out – I think somehow what the title is, Not Yet – hey, you're getting better, but you're not there yet, you know. Um, You know, so you can take the error and build on a, you know, more uh, in a positive way that they're getting better, even though they just made an error.
0: Yeah, as a a clarification here, I think this is what you're saying, and tell me if if this is the case, that in learning something, we can have an error of execution. What we can't have is uh, an, an error in the behavior so for example, if we've determined an end game, we cannot hit an off-speed shot, we've got to go for it. Um, then if we go for it and miss high hands, if that's the shot we're training, we're comfortable with that. What we can't do is have someone in end game tip the ball because we know, you know, we know from experience, the other team is gonna be energized to play that. And it's like handing the game to them and saying, here, you determine who's gonna yeah. win this game. Yeah. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, okay. for sure.
0: For sure. Uh, uh, analyze the game to plan activities and quality feedback. That's a, a big sentence. So some of the bullet points you have on that are take practice statistics to monitor performance um uh, challenge teams and individual players to improve statistical performance. So let's say that um you know we used to we used to pass on a three-point system where a three was a perfect pass, a two, the setter could set the pin hitters, um, a one, you know, we could bump the ball back over the net. It's not enough to just say we want to pass at a 2.5. How are we gonna do that? How how and, and what do we have to measure? What are the behaviors we have to measure if we want to pass it a
1: 2.5? Yeah, it's um for me, I I I use statistics for me. Um I don't use them for the players on a regular basis, but I use them for me to plan practice activities. Um and I think coaches at every level, but for sure college coaches, they're inundated with with numbers, with statistics. Um, but then, then there's, okay, now what? Um, to your point, you know, okay, we're, we wanna pass at a 2.5, how are we gonna get there? Does that mean we need to spend more time on it? Does that mean we need to work on how we move to the ball? Do we need to work on communication skills? Do we need to work on our visual cues so we're identifying the serve earlier and making a faster commitment to the pass? I mean, there's all these little micro things that make up how the end product looks. And I think, um, again, too often we take this number, well, we passed at a 2 2, we want to get up to a 2 5. Let's just pass more. Well, then it goes back to what we talked about earlier. That that just becomes an unfocused activity while I'm passing. Yeah, I know. But what are you working on? You know, what, what exactly are you working on here? Um, so we got to take that number, whatever statistical number exists, and then, okay, now to improve that number, we've got to do A, B, or C, you know, with our technique.
0: And and it it, it could be that we're our passing is significantly worse. Than- rotations 5 and 6 and they're significantly worse with somebody moving to their right or between two uh, particular people and that's the issue so we've got to consider well should we should we sub sometimes in that situation or do we spend hours working on this person you know trying to learn a drop step to their right or who's going to take that ball yeah uh, are we are communicating soon enough
1: yeah, it, it, so, but it can't be the coach taking this number and saying we need to pass better. It's
0: like, <laughs> okay, what <laughs> yes, do. It would be the equivalent of of a track coach saying to a hundred meter runner, you gotta, yeah, run you run. You gotta run faster. You uh, got to run faster."
1: It's the shoes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> make practices fun and rewarding. You know, when I when I first read that the other day, I thought, well, you know. I can remember I can remember the team telling the team fun is going into the Texas gym, winning and, and walking out, yeah. walking out and quieting the crowd. Yeah. That's the fun. We're preparing for. But I also think times are different. And and so we need to there needs to be a certain amount of joy in practice and celebrate. Celebrate things every time we can. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I, um,
1: you, the practice can't be drudgery, um, and and you know and, and, you know that could go back into who you who you recruit. You know, do you recruit somebody that's just going to make your practice gym more fun and more competitive? And maybe they're not the best player, but man, our team will be better because they're wearing our uniform. You know, so there's a lot of yeah. things that that go into having just a positive atmosphere and you can have a bad practice and still leave on some level of a, a positive note, you know? So if, if you can do that, if you can find some, um, and and maybe the positive note was, Hey, we didn't perform like we need to. We're going to do the same practice again tomorrow and let's see if we can do better. You know I mean? So there's, there's lots of ways you can communicate it, but, um, you know, I I don't think kicking a team out of the gym because of a poor performance is probably not the
0: recipe for long term success. Yeah, uh, differentiate drill from scrimmage, and we've talked about that that some that that what we're both saying is that we need we need we need practice that has a considerable amount of fundamental development that is in a specific drill, as opposed to just throwing the ball out and saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to play today, learn from it, because there are some situations that learn, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) It would be like, it would be the equivalent of a kindergarten teacher going in and putting all the alphabet in a can and throwing it out out on the floor and say, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> read <laughs> yeah 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 uh yeah i mean
1: again it goes back to what i said earlier we have to um really prioritize the the learning process and the educational aspect of coaching rather than the activity aspect it's not the activity and it's not the drill i mean um coach is looking for magical drills sometime and it's not the drill it's uh it's how, it's the atmosphere that you have in your gym. It's the feedback that you're giving. It's um, rewarding improvement. I mean, just doing teaching stuff that everybody would expect out of a fifth grade teacher. You got to take that into the practice court.
0: But, but, but every fifth grade teacher, I, I assume to be accredited, has to have had classes in ed psych and, or classes that teach them the most effective ways to teach. Not all coaches have. Yeah, no question.
1: And, um, um, I I want to, I want to make sure I phrase this correctly, you know, is if you, if you go on test scores, we're not teaching very well either. You know, you know, in general we have to teach better and, um, you know, I I, I mentioned in my book, you know, we have this constructivism where if we put kids into a, an activity, then they construct what they learn. And it just doesn't I just don't believe it works that way. I think you, there's got to be some instruction going on. So, you know, if if the volleyball gods were to ask me for a suggestion in terms of what should we require from club volleyball coaches at a minimum? It wouldn't be as much skill related, might be some, but it'd be more teaching related. How, how can we best organize our activities with teaching in mind? And I'm not sure we're doing that right now. It's, uh, it's other things. And I think the, the kids want to be taught. I mean, I you know, most kids, they, they want to improve. They want to try and improve. And when things aren't going well, it's basically you can trace it back to they don't feel they're, like they're getting better
0: right, uh, I think this last one is is really important to you. I sense that that players must learn uh, the correct and necessary visual cues that um, that you can't you you aren't going to be in position to pick up a dump if you're watching everything on the other side of the net. You have to prioritize a, a sequence and t- uh, talk about that
1: well. I- the the basic concept that i've bought into and i've done a lot of reading on this is is your eyes only focus on one thing at a time so when i i hear coaches telling their middle blockers okay you got to see everything that's going on over there it's like that's impossible they the the eyes can't do it so it's not a question of the player not wanting to it, it's we have as coaches if the eye is only gonna focus on one thing at a time, now they can do it fast, but it's just one thing. Um, what what are the sequential events that we want people to, to focus on? Uh, and I, I don't think we we do a great job of that with our instructional process. We, we want kids to pass serve, um, but we don't teach them, okay, where do most people serve? Well, they serve kind of where their shoulders are facing. Well, if the shoulder's facing to you over there, how about let's move over there? I mean, before, before the ball's ever tossed. So that's a, a simple cue. Or is it going to be uh, – what's the con- – is it a fast arm? Well, That's probably more of a deep serve. Is it a slower arm, short serve? Is there spin on the ball? Um, and, and I think in every position, there's visual cues that players need to sequentially – go through and the more they go through it the faster it'll be and what I started asking kids on the youth national team when they would you know they would do something they would hit a shot or they'd make a move on defense it's what did you see you know what did you see that made you want to hit that shot when you have a 6-5 Russian on the antenna <laughs> stuffing it you know um And generally it's, well, they didn't see, you know, it's like, well, we got to watch, you know? So um, we, I constantly am asking players, what'd you see? What'd you see? What'd you see? Because the faster the game goes, you kind of have to be in position before the ball is served or before the ball is attacked. If you try to make up for it by reacting, it becomes a tough ask.
0: Um, Yes one of the things that we ran in practice we, uh, we had three different defenses a basic perimeter defense a rotation and then kind of a hybrid and i would ask the um uh, either side of the net to switch at times and it would be the player's responsibility to recognize that the other team had switched how many times have we seen somebody saying they're playing a rotation defense and the left side player goes up and tips the ball to the to the person rotated up every time. Yep, and, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Rotation defense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, know, you almost hate to put it in their mind, uh, yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that I think that uh, what we're trying to do is create an environment where they learn to uh be as curious as you are as observant as you are where they begin to take responsibility for their their own development you know when I asked you earlier today what you thought your talent was you said I'm I'm a curious person I I'm and, and I don't think that you're just curious about volleyball I'm guessing you're curious about everything you know that <laughs> Much to my detriment at times. <laughs> <laughs> no, but occasionally we'll run across something from other venues that have application to what we're doing. You know, what, like Nikola Jokic. Who's, who's the Nikola Jokic of women's volleyball? Who's, who's the person, you know, that sees the game that, that she sees? The only example I can think of is, and I've shared this with several people, Uh, Several years ago, Illinois came in and played Northern Colorado. And Northern Colorado is really well coached. And Illinois was down 10 5 in the fifth set. And then Illinois' setter, who was the setter on that last Olympic team, and you can tell me her name because you've probably coached her at some point. Jordan Poulter, yeah. Jordan Poulter took charge. And she didn't take charge verbally. It was just her presence and her decision-making brought Illinois back to win the match. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much her technical training. It was, she recognized what needed to be done, who needed to get the ball in what position for them to be uh, successful.
1: Yeah. And- I coached Jordan when she was 15 and 16 uh, down in Denver and um what the story you just described doesn't surprise me at all because she's very cerebral. She's extremely bright. And, um, but you're right. She has, doesn't have that, you know, I'm in charge personality by, by, by voice, right. But she dictates everything that's going on out there and, uh, yeah, makes it, she makes a coach look pretty good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons that I, I love setters. When we'd when we'd rough run camp, we'd always have you know you have a staff match, and so you've got maybe four teams, and two of them are composed of Nebraska players, and maybe one of them has some people coaching. That's mixed with camp campers or whatever. Not a great deal of talent, but if Lori Endicott was coaching camp and you put her with that worst group, they'd win. <laughs> they they were organized right from the beginning, you know, and it wasn't a damn thing she said, but she just, she set hittable balls, which relaxed them, you know, and she went to the right. (laughs) Hittable balls. It's an amazing thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jim, you're, you're an amazing coach. And I want to touch base on, on your book again, a game, a game plan for better practices. And at that same, on your website, um, they can also pick up Jim Stone's coach's journal. Uh, that you, uh, they can they can subscribe to that. Yep. And um, if they just uh, uh, Google Jim Stone coaching, I would think that they can get Jim, to where they Jim, Jim Stone Consulting. Jim Stone Consulting. That's right. We're consultant consultants yeah. these days. Uh, you know what? You know we remind us of. Do you remember the how the Muppets, the, the, the two old guys up in the balcony in the theater. It would be, (laughs) we're not in the arena. You know what? One of my players,
1: he, she was, uh, she was very talented at drawing. She said, I reminded her of one of the the old guys on on the Muppets. So she, (laughs) she drew, it wasn't very flattering. (laughs) Just like going, I'm glad to say I've never seen the Muppets. So I have no idea what you're doing here, but so yeah, she got a kick out of it.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry to remind you that I, I want to thank Dave Pulaski, our producer in Learfield. I also want to thank uh, Humanex Ventures. And if if you're in need of a coach, and and you want to hire an organization that'll help you find a great coach, or if you're in need of someone to help your coach develops, um, contact Humanex Ventures. Jim, thank you so much, and we'll look forward to um, Inside the Coaching Mind next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the Coaching Mind with Coach Terry Pettit. Tune in next time as we welcome in another guest to talk leadership, coaching, and team building. Inside the Coaching Mind is presented
1: by HumanX Ventures and in collaboration with Learfield.